0: On the same page, A Good Omens Fan Fiction by Chekhov, read by Gal 86 Part 6, Chapter 8. The morning of the second day at the Dowling's cottage came a bit too early. Azirfiel woke around five and found that he couldn't go back to sleep no matter how long he lay still and counted imaginary sheep. That trick had never worked anyway. Ever since he'd been young, he always got preoccupied with the question of why the sheep were there and who was watching them, and then began to count imaginary sheep herders instead, which always progressed into thinking about Jesus somehow which always became an issue of conceptualizing a historically accurate Jesus, which further dissolved the attempt at restfulness. After an hour of an imaginary argument about an old translation squabble that had involved the book of Hebrews, and a long and winded explanation of the evolution of language to a very disinterested priest— who had actually existed and had, in reality, eventually won the argument through sheer tenacity to misunderstand Azir Fale's desperate explanations. The tried-and-true method of getting himself worked up did the job of waking him completely. He opened his eyes and turned his head to look at the body stretched out next to him. Crowley was fast asleep, properly asleep this time. The question of whether or not he'd actually been asleep last night was still up in the air. Azirfeel had at first thought he was, and had made the mistake of reaching out to tentatively bridge the contact between them. It was selfish. he just thought he might be able to get away with it. It had been so long since he'd actually touched that soft hair. But Crowley had tensed. And for a moment, Azirfield feared that this whole time, he had actually been quite conscious. It seemed like something Crowley would do to avoid making him feel awkward about sharing the bed, which Azirfield had to admit was silly. He hadn't actually minded, was rather thrilled, in fact, although he obviously couldn't admit as much, lest to be mistaken for some sadistic thrill he was taking in Crowley's discomfort at their proximity. Despite this worry, the fact that Crowley had rolled back into his sigh and pressed up against him like a cat made his ear feel almost entirely certain he had been asleep. Maybe, possibly. He certainly hadn't protested when his earfail started playing with his hair again, and if he hadn't been asleep at that point, he most definitely was already deep into a dream when he pressed his face into his earfail's sigh, mumbled fucking ducks, and proceeded to drool on Aziraphale's pajama bottoms for the next half an hour. The levels of not minding Aziraphale had hit at that moment were off the charts. He gave up on his book, and instead dedicated his full attention to watching Crowley's face fondly, tracing every familiar line, smushed as it was against his hip, committing it to memory. But all things had to end, Sometime around one in the morning, Crowley had finally rolled away, and his earfail, now free to move about as he pleased without disturbing his bed partner, sank into the marshmallowy mattress and did his best to get some shut eye. At the moment, Crowley was still on his own side, and although he had curled back towards his earfail, there was a remaining gap between them that neither dared breach a second time around. The temptation was making him consider it though, so to keep his hands busy, he rolled over to pick up his phone, scrolling through several emails from fans before checking if there were any new messages from Gabriel. There indeed were, but mostly it was reminders to be careful and not post anything on social media that might tip off his location. Photos featuring Crowley were of course out of the question, and photos with the Dowlings were also to be kept private. This was, as Gabriel put it, to be on the down low. Just because the American diplomat was evidently fine with his sexuality didn't mean it had to get out to the general public. Nothing about this was surprising, but Aziraphale couldn't help but feel a sting of frustration in the old wound he carried around. He'd be nothing but careful for the past six years. Why was Gabriel still convinced he was going to botch everything up? He turned his head, looking once again at Crowley. The lax arch of his brow and softly parted lips painted a picture of absolute vulnerability that was a rare sight. It was still dark outside, but now the edges of the trees and the window had begun to glimmer with the faintest hint of dawn. Little by little, the sun edged up across the forest, tickling the evergreens just enough to paint them a lovely gold while keeping the contrast of their dark branches under fresh coats of snow. The snow itself was so much brighter than he imagined. As the minutes ticked past, the light spilled over into their room, sneaking across the floor and climbing into the bed with them. It shied around Crowley's shoulders and then splashed into Crowley's hair, setting it alight in a beautiful, burning amber hue. Before he knew what he was doing, his ZRPL was angling his phone, thumb over the shutter button. Fuck Gabriel and his rules, he thought with a shocking edge. Of course, it was easy to snap the photo. It was more difficult to then reconcile taking it while Crowley wasn't even conscious. Lying to Gabriel was one thing. Taking advantage of Crowley's inability to protest the picture for the sake of his own twisted fantasies was quite something else. He gazed forlornly at the image for a few moments, and his finger hovered over the delete button. It was really for the best just to get rid of it, even if the photo was incredibly beautiful. This new phone, which Crowley had bullied him into getting, had excellent quality. Something about the pixel counts, as hadn't bothered to ask. He knew better than to invite another two hour lecture about how important it was to be with the times. In the middle of chewing his lower lip and tracing the tiny copy of Crowley's lovely hair with his gaze, he felt a stirring beside him. Bad angle? Crowley grunted. Azirfield started and fumbled for his phone in a hurried attempt to exit out of the current photo, but only succeeded in dropping the surprisingly heavy square directly onto his face. Did he see? He wondered. Rubbing the bruised bridge of his nose and peeking sideways. The man's eyes were still closed when Azirfield looked, but the automatic shutter sound on the phone must have woken him up. Why hadn't he asked Crowley how to turn it off when he'd bought the phone? All oh, right, the teasing sorry, he grappled in the pile for an available excuse. I just I was testing out the camera. yeah, I know. Crowley replied and cracked open one eye immediately, penned under that intense golden gaze. Azirfeel felt his mouth dry up in a flash of heat that resonated throughout his entire body. Crowley looked, if it were possible, even more tantalizing. Better than any romantic novel cover, even without any visible abs. Those amber irises gently gazing up at him, the way he was tangled up in the bedsheets. His shoulders sloping just so. The peak of his chest hair disappearing into the folds of the blanket. His voice was scratchy, stuck together with sleep between syllables, but that somehow made it even more attractive. "'You can take another one,' he said, cocking an eyebrow suggestively. Azirphail tried to comprehend the words being spoken at him with minimal success. Most of his brain seemed to be out to lunch with the concept of rolling Crowley over and pinning him to the mattress and taking something else entirely. "'I beg your pardon?' he asked after what must have been an awkward second or two of silence. "'A photo,' Crowley replied, closing his eyes again and turning his face deeper into the pillow. His expression was difficult to read when it was visible— now with his face hidden, it was anyone's guess what he was thinking. You can take another photo of me, if you want. Married couples are supposed to have photos of each other, aren't they? Yes. I see muttered and cleared his throat nervously. I ima- imagine they might. It's the dumb thing. Is it? Crowley opened one eye again and gazed up at him with a mix of that sardonic fondness he was so good at. What are you going to tell the Dowlings if they ask to see photos of us together? Kind of strange if we don't have any at all, don't you think? Might be a little suspicious. At this, Azair frowned. Crowley was right. They couldn't exactly sail by on a single photo of his husband in the cottage bed. Maybe he said. You can do that thing, um, the thing with the shop uh, for photos. Uh, The the shopping of photos. Photoshop. Crowley snickered, and he was once again smiling. (laughs) Christ, you dinosaur. It's not that simple. I can't do it on short notice. Look, just, um, save the one you took a second ago and call it a day. If they ask, we can pretend that your phone got stolen recently and we lost the files. And what about you? Crowley turned his head into the pillow and mumbled something unintelligible. Dear, Aziraphale said sternly. The effect was inspiring. Crowley groaned but sat up almost at once, beginning to climb off of the bed on his own side with all the grace of someone utilizing a fire escape. "'I've got a few,' he replied, still not making eye contact. "'A few?' Azir Phil repeated incredulously. "'How many is a few?' "'With the very rare exception of when they got drunk enough to start taking those so-called selfies in Crowley's apartment after one particularly crazy night involving tequila, they actively avoided being photographed together as much as possible.' The previously described episode ended with the villain promising to delete the incriminating snapshots, but Azir failed never actually demanded it. Deep down, he hoped they still existed somewhere, albeit somewhere private. "'A few,' reiterated Crowley. "'What kind of husband would I be if I didn't have photos of us? I came prepared, unlike someone.'" Ignoring the bait with practiced ease, Zierfiel kicked his heels off of the mattress and followed after. "'What photos, Crowley? What exactly are you prepared for?' "'Wiles,' explained Crowley vaguely, throwing a towel over his shoulder and stalking toward the bathroom. "'Subterfuge. Trickery. Deceit. All the stuff I'm good at. That's what we came here to do, isn't it? A big theatrical production.' A Rube Goldberg machine of lies. That's my department. So don't worry. No need to sneak snapshots of me in the wee hours of the morning. I'll cover for us. And no one will discover your scary big secret. That you're actually not married to the sexiest man in all of London. He spun around in the bathroom doorway and grabbed the door, facing down his ear fail. His face was a play of fifteen kinds of emotions, A cocky eyebrow arched gracefully, something that was attempting to pass for casual playfulness, and a nonchalance that was currently at war with another sort of expression in his eyes, which was almost certainly hurriedly concealed panic. Azirphiel knew him well enough to put two and two together. Crowley seemed to forget this. And he seemed to also forget that a Zierfael had his own ammunition and would not take senseless teasing about momentary loss of control when someone was just as guilty of it. Well, he said, placing one hand on the wall and settling the other on his hip. His eyes snapped to Crowley's haughtily. I suppose we'll have no choice but to trust your wiles but just between us, I sincerely hope you're better at pretending to be married than you are at pretending to be asleep. There was a beat of silence, and then Crowley went red. Aziraphale was still smiling smugly when the bathroom door slammed in his face, and he did not stop for the rest of the morning. Five minutes later, Aziraphale deposited himself onto a barstool at the kitchen counter, albeit with some difficulty given that the seats were evidently not part of the everything-is-bigger-in-America collection. Harriet was already there, and she requested one of the maids get a Zierfiel a coffee before turning her full attention back to him and launching in to a house guest special of twenty questions. Sleep well? How was the room? Zeerfield smiled willingly in return, He was still writing a rather warm updraft from Crowley's embarrassed scowl this morning, and it was easy to act in good spirits. It was lovely, my dear. Thank you ever so much. Everything is very spacious. Not too cold, I hope. Did you use the fireplace? she asked. They continued in this manner for a time until the coffee arrived, and Azirphail began to slowly redirect her attention to other things. They discussed one of his recent books, and then discussed the weather, and then discussed Thaddeus, who was apparently still sleeping, although he would definitely show his face for lunch. These were Harriet's own words, and they sounded vaguely threatening, but that was perhaps just her standard tableside manner. I really am sorry for how he acted last night, she said and as the airfield would have lingered more on the matter if she hadn't pushed a plate of raisin cinnamon buns towards him at the same time. "'He's a bit out of touch, and he hasn't really... uh, "'He wasn't prepared for you to, um, uh, be, um...' She paused awkwardly. "'What I mean is, I apologize in advance for any strange comments from him. "'I'm afraid the whole thing was my idea, hiring you to do the book, that is.' As plucked a bun from the platter and bit into it. Warm butter seeped into his mouth and he found himself quite forgiving all of a sudden. I can't say I'm surprised, he said, keeping his tone light. That it was your idea, I mean. You're quite the businesswoman, I can already tell. Honestly, it wasn't that difficult of a pick. Your work is amazing and it's so much more important to focus on accomplishments than personal details, isn't it? That's very kind of you, my dear, and I appreciate you being so welcoming, despite it all. They sipped their coffee in mutual silence for a moment, and then she launched into the next stage of interrogation. Is Astaroth still in bed? Despite the innocent nature of the question, Azirphail's mind, in a truly shocking feat of physics skipped like a flattened rock over the most natural interpretation and sank directly into the most indecent one. Crowley certainly had been in bed, hadn't he? In his bed. Their shared bed. The one and only. It was difficult to bring up the memory of how close they really had been without submitting to a consequential blush. He's in the shower. And formed his ear veil, and then regretted that immediately afterwards, as his imagination, ever eager, supplied the appropriate visual for that as well. He certainly had been in the shower last night, hadn't he, until he came out of the shower, right in front of his ear veil. Quite a sight that was. He had barely had time to remember where they were, and who they were, and what they were, and what they weren't in time to stop himself from doing something incredibly idiotic. Did he sleep all right? He seemed really out of it last night at dinner. Though I imagine you both had a rough time driving up here all the way from New York. Harriet was blissfully unaware of his mental game of Tetris a few feet away. Despite his general lack of knowledge of modern video games, Zierfeld did know Tetris. He knew the mechanics, and the simplicity appealed to him. Maybe if he lined up the facts just right, the issue would disappear. He tried to refocus himself, and picked up a light, casual tone-on for size. It wasn't as bad as all that, a very pleasant trip. But it was long, and after the airplane, you understand it is sometimes rather unpleasant to sit in another metal tube hurtling at incredible speeds to uncertain destinations. And he's azirefa he hesitated, unsure of how much was appropriate to reveal about his spouse under such circumstances. last night he'd had a front row seat to Crowley's eyebrow gymnastics when he'd launched into a backstory about the unfinished astrophysics doctorate. Maybe he had overstepped it. He's not entirely a people person, you see, part of the reason we um, haven't been seen in public much. He's very private. Harriet winced sympathetically and leaned in. Oh, I see. That must be difficult. I just hope Thaddeus didn't upset him. He looked gloomy when he left. Oh, don't worry about that. Azirfield replied with an accompanying chuckle, feeling a bit more confident now that they were back in well-explored areas of Crowleyville. Gloomy is his natural state. The man never managed to find a way to exit his goth phase, and now he's perpetually stuck in the ascetic. Brave words, coming from someone who wears tartan. Harriet glanced up and over Azirfield's shoulder, lightening up at the sight of what was most certainly cruelly in the doorway. Oh, good morning! Azirfield did not turn around. He was still dangerously close to remembering about the shower. Instead, he plucked another bun from the plate and gestured to Harriet to get her attention. Dark skinny jeans, he said. Black, long-sleeved shirt, V-neck, black knit jumper. She blinked at him and then blinked at Crowley and then laughed. Wow. Am I wrong? Azirpiel asked. You're spot on. Crowley sauntered over if only for the purpose of making a mocking facial expression in Aziraphale's line of sight. Hilarious angel. Don't mention it, dear, said Aziraphale, and they held each other's gaze for a few seconds too many. Crowley's scowl tinted red, and he stretched his lips into their most accurate depiction of a gargoyle's mute growl, before turning around and flopping onto a barstool like a spider setting upon a prey with an overzealous amount of leg movement. What'd there be like breakfast? Harriet asked, having evidently not noticed any of the tension in the room. Zaerfield happily assented, Crowley refused the offer of pancakes, agreed to a coffee, and then fell into grumpy silence as they chatted aimlessly, which was not a fact that went unnoticed by their host. Like most other socialite types, she was clearly suffering from withdrawals of community engineering. "'Which one of you typically cooks when you're at home?' She asked when the food finally arrived and could fulfill its role as the topic of conversation. Zierfield picked up a fork and glanced sideways at Crowley in what he hoped was a casual manner. Right. It was time to ad-lib. Liberally. "'I'm afraid I'm mostly rubbish in the kitchen,' he admitted. "'So far, so good. This wasn't even a lie by any stretch of the imagination.' "'So uh, Ashtoreth does most of it.' "'Oh, that's nice,' Harriet smiled. "'What do you usually make?' "'Lots of stuff. Baked bread, mostly.' "'Crowley momentarily hid his face behind his mug of coffee. "'Easier to make your own food when you're trying to avoid animal-based ingredients.' "'Oh, that's right. You mentioned that you were vegan.' She replied and then flipped her eyes back to fail, But you eat meat, right? Is that not hard when you keep different diets? Not at all, said fail. If I want to eat something he can't, we go to a restaurant to order takeout. It all works out, and I never say no to freshly baked bread. Harriet seemed all too sympathetic to this, and she laughed and leaned in with a conspiratorial wink. Be honest. Is that the real reason you married him? No, said Aziraphale. Yes, said Crowley at the same time. They looked at each other, eyebrows climbing in tandem. Come on, Angel, said Crowley, who recovered first. I know the way to your heart, and just like your bookshop, you keep all doors tightly closed but one. And that is your stomach. Don't be ridiculous. I didn't even know you baked until four years ago. as earfield protested, then realizing that they were veering dangerously toward a fork in the road of their backstory, tried to slam the brakes. I mean, yes, I do appreciate the baking, but that's hardly the reason. He felt awfully flustered, despite it being such a simple disagreement. But it wasn't fair. Crowley was making him sound like he was just in it for the pastries, and that wasn't at all romantic. He was making it sound like this was a marriage of convenience. It is. A small and very unwelcome voice chimed in from the back of his head. It is a marriage of convenience. A fake marriage. He deflated, shamed back into a momentary silence as the realization dawned on him. He had been the one to ask for this. Complaining was not in the cards. And what about you then, Ash? Continued Harriet, plowing onwards without any hint of awareness. What did you marry for? Money? She wiggled her eyebrows. No, of course not, Crowley replied. I've got that. Fame? She teased. Crowley and Azirfield snorted in unison. Despite Azirphail's outward popularity, it could easily be argued that Crowley was the more successful of the two of them. His reach tended to be far wider, and his audience, although they might never admit it publicly, had no trouble pledging their loyalty with their wallets. As a matter of fact, yes, Crowley agreed without warning. He glanced at Azirphail again and pasted on yet another shit-eating grin leaning back against the counter and bending his spine at an angle dramatic enough to make a medical student somewhere back in London sit up in bed in cold sweat. What an honor to spend my life on the arm of Mr. Fell, this decade's most beloved spiritual novelist. For years, I've dreamt of riches and wealth, but now I can finally have the recognition I deserve as his trophy husband. Unable to resist pulling a face this time, Aziraphale narrowed his eyes and pinched his lips accusingly. Crowley really was using this opportunity to make fun of him for all he had. The absolute devil, he should have known. He was enjoying this. All the while, Aziraphale was fretting on their behalf, trying to make it sound unassuming and believable. A sudden reflex seized him, an indignant fire. He wasn't about to be publicly made fun of they were in this together damn it and crowley couldn't go the entire week poking fun at him without a taste of his own medicine oh don't be silly dear you know that's not it he protested perfectly pleasant there is something else only i can do isn't there harriet turned her head following the pass of the invisible conversational ball into the opposite court Looking like he'd just been hit with something heavy over the head, Crowley tried for words. "Uh, What's that? Fumbling to volley rather miserably. azir let it sail past him. Instead, he leaned forward as if to tuck a stray hair behind the man's ear. Reached out, and at the last second, allowed a smug grin to slip onto his lips. Opposite him, Crowley froze as his fingertips skimmed his ear and suddenly flipped and changed direction. Magic, he said simply, exposing a golden coin between his fingers with a needless flourish. As if on cue, Harriet gasped and clapped in enthusiastic approval. Under her boisterous compliments, Azirfield only barely had the time to steal a glance at his victim and found him a pleasant shade of crimson with a mixture of second-hand embarrassment and horror on his face. No. He groaned loudly and then louder again at Harriet. No! Don't encourage him! He'll keep doing this the whole time. He's unbelievable. Are you listening? You're unbelievable. I I can't even spend a minute without you doing... I... With a final indignant huff, the man stuffed his half-eaten sentences into a metaphorical satchel and sprang up from the chair demonstrably. azir wore his own shit-eating grin proudly. He didn't even mind when Crowley threw up his hands and grabbed for his coffee, loudly announcing that he would be off to find some peace and quiet. As the others stepped around him, he swore he could hear a stage whisper just behind his shoulder. Oh, it's on, Angel. It wasn't a declaration of war, not exactly. If war was involved at all, it would be cold. A nuclear arms race, so to speak. The arms, the weapons in question, were dares. Provocations. Griping about a non-existent issue in their non-existent relationship. Griping about real issues in their non-existent relationship. A pointed comment may have been made in Azir direction about his time spent in custody at the International Airport Charles de Gaulle in Paris. And another pointed comment may have been returned snappily about the state of one's dress when one arrived at said airport on an impromptu rescue mission. You don't get to complain about my get-up when you were in the detention room cosplaying a goddamn three-layer strawberry cake, Angel. I was not about to travel in a potato sack. I have standards. Sure, very high standards. They are for a criminal. Did I mention he was attempting to smuggle out some... Yes, dear. Everyone heard you the first fifteen times. If questioned, Azirphel would of course deny his participation in this ill-mannered exchange of fire out of principle. He was not that kind of man. After all, Crowley was helping him out in a rather difficult situation. If anything, he should have taken the comments lying down and still thanked the other at the end of the day. Instead, he was enjoying their sniping immensely. More importantly, he enjoyed how easily Crowley seemed to become flustered when Azir Fael switched strategies and began to praise him for how romantic and dashing a husband he was. He spent the majority of his time trying to think of how to play his cards right to get Crowley to sputter and blush and try without much excess to deny some recount of a bedazzled version of an evening they'd spent together two or three or five years ago. There was absolutely no reason for him to tease the other like this. No real rhyme to how much he reveled in the way they paced around each other like wolves, giving pretend snaps at each other's ankles. Of course, that wasn't entirely true. The reason did exist, but it was selfish, and not one Azir Phil was eager to examine too closely. A grocery list of sins to take to the confession booth, where he still inclined. Gluttony, pride, greed, lust. Oh, lust. He knew he should place more weight on it given the reason behind his constant side-glances towards the object of his affection. But the reality was, it was only a piece of the puzzle. The real issue was how much other general selfishness was involved in the overwhelming desire he felt for the man. Gluttony specifically. He wanted more. Always wanted more. Despite knowing full well he could not have it. They'd always bickered in between their conversations about Anne Desclose, discussions of the Bloomsbury group, and further arguments regarding anything that took a fails literary fancy. It was the palate cleanser before the next bite of sushi, an appetizer and a dessert, to their ever-revolving menu of topics. And up until now, it had been a rationed treat something Aziraphale had no chance to indulge in aside from their rare moments together. But now he had the opportunity to not only lovingly bicker about all things, but also to do it continuously. He didn't have to stop and pull his hand back from the plate. He could snack, and keep on snacking until he was full. He could watch all of Crowley's endearing reactions out in broad daylight, in high definition, like one of those TVs he refused to buy. But it was indubitably bad for his health, all this overindulging. He was going to spoil dinner, spoil his appetite, mess this up. Certainly, there had to be a limit to this bad habit. Certainly, the universe would eventually punish him for his overzealousness. And yet the universe had put him there. At the table with Crowley on full display, only an arm's reach away. Seasoned with the soft white light pouring in through the frosted windows, warmed to a crisp with the glow of the fireplace reflecting in his hair, wrapped and caramelized in a thin, black, half-sleeved shirt that hugged the elegant torso just so, straining against those wiry arm muscles as he leaned over the kitchen counter to steal a biscuit off of Aziraphale's plate. It was definitely deliberate on Crowley's part. How couldn't it have been? Aziraphale had taken care to make sure that most of their meetings throughout the years would be at night, under the cover of darkness, so that he might not have to look at Crowley too closely. Now, in the light of day... The man seemed to be reveling in his freedom to flaunt every single asset he had, and as much of a direct line of sight of fail as was physically possible. The fact that fail stubbornly kept Crowley in his line of sight was an irrelevant coincidence. Every swing of the hips, taking a dangerous turn around the corner, as if he was compensating for his lack of a Bentley, Every carefully calculated, oops, shit, sorry, slippery fingers, as he dropped yet another object handed to him and bent in half at the waist to pick it back up. Every stroke of those long, elegant fingers along the length of his neck, tracing the delectable skin there. It was all on purpose, as the airfield was certain of it. The worst of it was knowing, knowing full well how that lithe, perfect form felt pressed against him, knowing the strength of those fingers digging into his back as the other writhed beneath his weight and begged in a breathless moan for more, drawing him closer, wrapping around him. Serpent, thought air fail, not for the first time. It had been something of a running joke with them for the longest time. Starting from the moment early on in their relationship when Crowley had gone on a chatroom rampage about how the Snake of Eden had only been doing its job and, well, if God hadn't actually wanted humans to eat the apple, wouldn't it have been more reasonable to place it somewhere out of reach? The moon, perhaps? failed laughed then, laughed quite fondly in the dark in front of his computer, wondering if he should get to know the skittish, sharp-tongued stranger better. He was not laughing now. "'Are you all right?' Harriet asked, interrupting his internal monologue and snapping him back into the present, where he was sat at a coffee table with the host of the cottage and his pretend spouse. "'Oh, yes, I'm sorry,' Thankfully, his reflex to respond amiably was alive and well, even when his head was rattling and empty. Just a bit distracted. I'm still on London time, I'm afraid. Crowley glanced up from his spot crouched by the fireplace and lifted one elegant eyebrow at him. Airfield looked back, trying to pretend he was fine. It was fine. He could handle it. That he wasn't being thoroughly led astray with the twisting silhouette of the other against the flames in the fireplace. That the shape of his hair, pulled back into a half bun and loose around the shoulders, did not inspire a flood of memories of a similar condition where the thing holding that hair at the back of his head was not a hair tie. The issue was not that he was leaning against the apple tree, resisting a bite being offered to him by a particularly convincing reptile. No, it was worse. He had already had a taste, had already devoured the apple whole, and now, with its juice still dribbling down his chin, he was itching to climb up into the branches. Determined to rid the thing of its entire harvest in one afternoon while leafing through apple fritter recipes in his head. Gluttony indeed. How about a break for coffee? Harriet said. I'll get it. For some reason it was Crowley that stood up, unfolding his lanky knees and stepping around the table and behind the couch. I hope I'm not bothering you, Harriet said once again catching Azirphiel's attention when the distracting devil was out of sight. I'm sure you wanted to talk business with Thaddeus, but it's unfortunately quite common for him to be on a call at any given hour of the day. He should be freed up for dinner this evening, at the very least, but for now, you'll have to put up with me. Nonsense, my dear, Azirphiel assured her with a warm smile. I'm loving your company, I just... uh... I really must be more tired than I let on. Haven't got much sleep, you understand. Oh, do I? groaned Harriet sympathetically. I'm a disaster. Every time we have to travel, up and down the coast is one thing. Heading over to other countries for visits is an absolute clusterfuck. Oops! She put her hand over her mouth and looked at him guiltily. What? What? Asked Azir confused for a moment before he realized her worry. Oh, good lord, no, please don't mind about the swearing. My husband has quite a mouth on him. If I were worried about that, I dare say our marriage wouldn't have lasted. Harriet relaxed and then leaned back as she considered this information. You are rather different, aren't you? She said. I get the feeling that I wouldn't have expected the two of you to be together under normal circumstances. How did that happen? Aziraphale gave an innocent half shrug. Opposites attract, and well, we're certainly different, and there is a lot we have in common, such as. Aziraphale's gaze drifted away for a moment. He opened his mouth, tried to think of a story tried to construct some intricate lie of an idealistic marriage, and then stopped the construction halfway through, catching it somewhere in his throat and choking it back. He and Crowley did have a lot in common. In fact, the more he thought about it, the more things came to mind. The crumpled blueprints of the white picket fence life went flying, metaphorically tossed over his shoulder the note cards scattered onto the floor behind the podium. "'Why not just wing it?' he thought. "'We both appreciate the finer things.' A steady calmness crept over him as he spoke, shuffling for words, picking them carefully out of their files as if he were leading a sermon. "'No lies, just careful selection.' showing only so much detail while pocketing the rest. Wine, good food, also the arts, opera and theater. We have different tastes, but we also love a good debate, so it creates a nice little ecosystem of arguments to feed back into our time together. He smiled quietly to himself and stole a glance towards the kitchen, which was out of sight around the corner. He could imagine Crowley there, curled like a question mark at the counter, elegant hands around a mug. He had seen the other in such a pose enough times to not even need a visual prompt. Harriet hummed and set her elbows onto the table, leaning towards him. Do you argue often? Only about insignificant things, as the airfield replied. Like where to go for dinner, or which bottle of port to open for a night in. Sometimes about theology. She hummed again. You say insignificant, but theology isn't exactly a light topic. Your books are all about religion and spirituality, and Ash he is, is he an atheist. Isaiah chuckled. That's complicated. He's rather against organized religion as a concept. And it doesn't bother you. Bother as the Airfail thought, almost as if he'd forgotten that such a thing were possible. He realized, with a bit of a start, that he had not considered their opposing worldviews an issue for half a decade. More than that, even. It had never been anything but a pleasant tension to balance their conversation on. But it was one thing to navigate the theological maze of his beliefs while sidestepping Crowley's own, and another completely to explain it to some stranger. Before we could begin to think of how to reply, there was a shuffling of steps from the kitchen, and they both glanced over at Crowley, approaching with several mugs precariously balanced in his arms. Made three. Without much prompting, a mug settled into his Fiel's hand. The other he gave to their hostess. Harriet, uh, this is for you. Now, uh, what did I miss? What are you two talking about? Mostly about you. Azirphail said, spinning the cup in his hands to curl his fingers into the handle properly. Harriet is trying to mind me for information. The woman laughed and waved him off. No, no, not at all. It's just natural curiosity. I asked Azirphail what you two argue about. We don't. Crowley responded sinking into the seat beside Aziraphale, but leaving a polite foot of space. Arguing with him is impossible. I just say, yes, Angel, and keep my head down. Sometimes, if I'm feeling particularly bold, I suggest where we go to dinner. Oh, hush you, protested Aziraphale. I'm not that bad. Sure, if you like explaining your opinion to a wall." snorted Crowley, and then catching a side glare, abated, which, as you know, is my favorite pastime. But I thought Aziraphale said you like to debate, Harriet said, eyes narrowing just a fraction. To Crowley's credit, he did not even hesitate. We do, he agreed, taking a hearty sip from his own mug and smacking his lips. It works better when he's got some alcohol in him, that's why I only began talking to him after the intermission champagne has worked its magic. "'Is this about the time we went to see Rite of Spring?' asked Vizier, failing credulously. you let it go? I've said my piece!' Crowley rolled his eyes, taking care to transfer the effect across his entire face so that it might not be lost behind his glasses. "'You've said your war, too,' Tolstoy would be shocked at how much you said on both subjects. Very clever, Zierfail replied with a tisk, for a man who spent the whole performance googling half-naked photos of Nijinsky. Crowley groaned theatrically. Those are the only photos of him available. Forgive me for seeking a bit of historical accuracy. Oh, is that what you're calling it these days? Okay, okay said Harriet hurriedly, looking startled at how quickly everything had taken off. Whatever her curiosity or skepticism had been, it appeared, for the moment, sated. A small part of his ear fail was smug about this, but another part of him didn't know how to feel. If he could be proud of making things up on the spot, that would be one thing, a boon to his career as an author, a point awarded to his imagination— But none of what they'd said had been anything other than an amusing recollection of events that transpired a few years ago, after Crowley had once again waved a pair of tickets in his face and made some half-genuine threat of wanting to participate in a riot, if history was going to repeat itself, or perhaps even start one, depending on how well he liked the show, as the airfield had gone with him to make sure nothing actually happened. Crowley's urges were dangerous things, after all. Someone had to keep an eye on him, and they'd had an overall lovely time, half-drunken argument about inappropriate costume choices notwithstanding. "'It must be nice,' said Harriet in the middle of an obvious segue into a more calm conversation, "'to still go on so many dates even after being together for so long.'" Azirfield felt a shiver. "'Yes, it really is just such a lucky coincidence.'" He thought carefully, like treading on ice that was cracking right beneath his feet. A pleasant, meaningless stroke of good fortune that they just happened to have a backup story to share for this exact moment. Beside him, Crowley snorted as if amused. If I didn't drag him out of his bookshop, we wouldn't go anywhere at all, he said. He just wants to stay in all the time. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if I were to just... Stop asking him out. Azirphiel turned his head. Crowley was already looking back at him, lips stretched into a taut smile, daring him to argue. In the reflection of the dark lenses, Azirphiel could see a rather shocked expression on his own face, almost forlorn, that he didn't recall making. His eyes were wide. I would get lonely, I should think he said very quietly. Crowley swallowed and hardly turned back to his coffee. Whatever bravery had been shining out of him a moment prior was once again scrawled away in exchange for something almost resembling bashfulness. That it, he muttered. As the Airfield's heart fluttered in trepidation, and then the discomfort lurched downward to his stomach like a punch in the gut. A memory of Crowley assaulted his mind, six years ago on the street corner, illuminated by the neon sign of the garden kicking the ground anxiously, like he thought he was about to be rejected, like he didn't know how much his fail had wanted him. He didn't exactly hide it well. Did Crowley really think? But as soon as the moment arrived, it was gone again. Crowley was tipping his chin back up, focusing on Harriet and holding out his phone, saying something about Russian ballet. He wasn't paying attention to how his ear stared at his back, biting his lip. The crunch of the apple's soft skin breaking under his teeth was just a faded memory. How do you know you have something if you're not able to grasp it, hold it in hand, Feel the physical push of its mass against your palms. Possession. Ownership. Being able to call something yours. It's merely a state of mind. One may go so far as to say that nothing is ever really owned. We merely take things on rent, be it long or short as our lifespans. Humans are temporary. Temporary. Regardless of belief in the afterlife or lack thereof, one cannot deny mortality, the limited state of our physical being. Holding something only lasts as long as you have hands and arms to hold it with. Once skin and bone and teeth have worn away to ash, how does one lay claim on their beloved? As a religious man, as Azirfeel wondered often about heaven, he wondered more often about hell. He lingered, sometimes, on purgatory. None of these he lingered on as long as he lingered on Crowley's consistency. His rebound, his promise, silent and steady as the phases of the moon. An ancient calendar, unwritten and unreadable, leaving no clues to its use except for its unrelenting punctuality. The sound of footsteps gracing his door, the ring of the bell, a flourish of the hand, something always in it. Tickets, a pamphlet, a phone showing blurry photos of some faraway bar, where they wouldn't fall victim to prying eyes. Depending on the season, a soft smile, or a teasing, mischievous grin, Azirphal was a devout believer. He kept to the calendar. He observed each holy day. He studied, and he made mental notes, and he mapped the stars, and he knew. He always knew when Crowley would visit. And Crowley always did. It was in those moments when he felt closest to what most people called heaven, that his ear failed pondered hell. He took the tickets from that hand, and it felt hot when their fingers brushed. He flipped open a pamphlet and sensed the impact of a breath leaning closer to look over his shoulder. He moved in to glance at the screen, and his eyes watered from the brightness. What is hell? One might argue it's about punishment. Others say it is simply the absence of God. Aziraphale leaned into the latter theory. He imagined the holy calendar running out of days. He imagined his doorway empty. He imagined the sudden lack of Crowley in his life. He imagined the promised consistency tearing itself off abruptly, leaving him grabbing at empty air. Punishing him for not being brave enough to reach out and fully grasp it. Once upon a time, for a night, Crowley had given himself freely. Now, he made no offers. But he offered his time. He offered regularity. He offered a steady, pulsing existence that was there, that kept tandem with him even when he asked for nothing. Each time when their outing was done, when the wine bottle was empty, when they had finished outlining their drafts, as the airfield would watch him walking away to the door of the bookshop, he would close his throat around a plea. A prayer remained in his heart, hollow and wanting, and tethered to the unfaulting calendar. If you love something. Let it go if it comes back. End of part six.